0: This is a Thinkers50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design
1: and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner and this is a Thinkers50 podcast. Today, my guest is Chris Clearfield, co-author of Meltdown, the book which uncovers the shared DNA of failure and reveals how we can make our teams more productive, improve our systems and transform how we make decisions at work and at home. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Publish always, publishers always told me not to write books about crisis management, as no one wants to have a book about crisis management on their bookshelves in their office. Uh, does the same? It, it seems worse. Meltdown seems much worse to me.
0: Yeah, it does. You know. On the other hand, I think that um, what motivated Andras and I to write the book, and in, in part, was just we were looking around and and seeing the world, seeing what was going on in the world, and sort of. Um, I think, think thinking that you know the, the way it 's often covered is there 's a series of different isolated failures you know one business might fail in this way, the financial crisis the the deepwater horizon oil spill. Um, but I think as we dug deeper into these, we started to realize that that they were all connected in different ways by the way that the systems themselves were were structured and also by the way the organizations ran those systems and so you know, I think for us, it wasn't so much a question of, of um, you know, should we write this this book on failure? It was almost like we have to write this book because this is kind of a different way of, of looking at things. And we, we think it's, I mean, frankly, we think it's an important way. We think it's important for people to start to get better at this because the complexity in the world is just going to keep increasing. I
1: mean, I mean if you wanted to summarize the book, it is that mm-hmm. complex systems require simple tools. I think that's a beautiful summary of it. Yes. Um, Yeah,
0: exactly. Complex systems require simple tools um, and they require a slightly different way of thinking about than, than a sort of simple um, linear system.
1: Doesn't what you're arguing in the book run counter kind of to organizational realities and almost to human realities in that in you look at organizations, dissent is not, not encouraged. And action is prized above above anything, and, and and isn't failure a fact of life in any in any complex system?
0: I think the answer to to all of those things is is yes. And I wonder if I might just take a, a quick step back and sort of just sketch out what we think of as complexity. Um, so for us, complexity has this this kind of pretty specific meaning. It means that. Um, our systems are they they they're, they're interconnections there are sort of unexpected things that happen because of the connections in the system not because of the individual parts of the system themselves so a complex system looks more like a web than an assembly line and sort of therefore also when things start to go wrong it's hard to figure out exactly what's happening it's hard to figure out what's going wrong um, and it's hard to figure out what's going to go wrong you know a complex system you can't Just get a bunch of smart people in a room and write down ahead of time you know this is the way this system is going to fail because these failures come from these interactive pieces interactive bits so i I think that's kind of an important premise to say you know yes a lot of what we write about in the book a, a bit is about how do we redesign our systems so they're a little bit simpler but some of what we write about most of what we write about is about how we bring different kinds of tools to thinking about these systems to Get a better handle on the way that they'll fail, as you said, encourage dissent in organizations. Um, and I think you know our our um, big picture takeaway is that, as you said, these these tools are simple, but that doesn't mean they're easy. You know, we tend to um, prioritize uh, decision making over uncertainty, right? We tend to prioritize people having a can-do attitude, in, instead of bringing dissent to things. Um, but we also see really big ways that that that, that backfires in, in kind of huge ways.
1: How do people respond in corporations when you talk about meltdowns? Are they, are they defensive, or does it does it ring true? <laughs>
0: um, I would say it depends on the it depends on the corporation, um, and I think that's one of the the really interesting things about this that the sort of um, you know you can you can tell something about how well a, an organization is going to be able to handle these kind of um, issues or, or sort of either managing them or avoiding them by the way that they approach this question in the first place. Um, I would say that a lot of the response we get is people who are saying, you know, yes, this is the problem I have. I just haven't been able to articulate it in this way. So I think that there's something, um, I don't want to sound too grandiose. It's, it's not universal necessarily, but, you know, there are a lot of managers, whether they're they're in the C-suite or they are, you know, sort of middle, middle management or senior managers who um, L- l- read the book or or kind of look at the stories and say, you know, yes, this is exactly what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with um, a- an organization in the system that's very complex and um, you know, some of these tools have really helped me. So, so there is, there is, I think an openness to um, the idea and the approach that's been really gratifying.
1: Yeah. I think the universality is is brought home by the the, the sheer range of examples in the book. Right. It ranged from the the Oscars debacle of a few years ago, when uh, they announced La La Land as the the winner and it wasn't, uh, to to Deepwater Horizon and, and various planes crashing crashing around the world. What's the genesis of the book, and how do you gather the the examples?
0: Yeah. So I the, the genesis of the book is it, it's kind of twofold. Um, I I worked on Wall Street during the financial crisis, so I was a I was a trader sort of watching, you know, these these huge financial institutions struggle, um, and some of them collapse, as you know. Um, And I I sort of thought it was a really interesting question to sort of ask, you know, what could we have said about who was going to do well and and who wasn't going to do well ahead of time? Uh, And then meanwhile, Andras uh, was finishing up his PhD at Harvard in uh, behavioral economics and economic sociology. And so he was also sort of studying the different ways that organizations made decisions um and and so it was kind of after uh, really after the deepwater horizon accident that we came together and said oh you know this is this is a much bigger issue than just finance this is a much kind of broader question um and we think that there is um space for people to think about this and and we think that the world kind of needs um you know needs needs not needs help exactly but that there's there's a different way to think about this that is um, better than the traditional tools that that people have been using, and so uh, you know, one thing led to another, and 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 we started working on the book. Um, you know, as far as the examples go, it's interesting. I mean, some of them were, um, you know, of course, you're writing a book. You need good. I mean, we we this was a, a rigorous. Um, you know, we brought rigorous social science research to this. I mean, we looked at peer reviewed papers. We interviewed researchers. Um, So one of the big things that we need is good source material, right? Good material about the systems, about the organizations, about the decision making as much as possible. And some of that we got through interviews, some of that we got through, you know, accident or incident reports. Um, In the case of the Oscars, for example, you know, that whole process was run by PwC, the the accounting and audit firm um, and consulting firm. And uh, before, just so happens that they had written a lot of PR pieces that season about, in the lead up to the Oscars, about their system and about how good their system was and all the redundancy they had in it, which you know turned out to be the the very cause of the problem. And so that was a, you know, we got lucky with with that one.
1: What's striking, actually, with a lot of the examples is the kind of the mundanity of complexity. In the the Oscars example, it came down to uh, them having two briefcases with, with, with the, uh, the results in, so it's not, not particularly complicated. And, uh, and, and that's, I mean, look at the co- the causes of plane crashes is found in there's, there's just one piece of paper with one word in, in, in quote marks. And that's what's in that's that kind of forensic examination of what went wrong is really interesting. But a lot of the example, you just kind of, you kind of think, yeah, that's, that's life <laughs> that, things are just slightly misunderstood and one slight misunderstanding leads to catalog of failure. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, to kind of circle back to something you said before, like we're not anti-failure, you know, like I think both, both, we think that failure has a, a a place in the world, right? I mean uh, you, you learn through failure, right? I mean, that's, if you've, if you've ever tried something and um, it's, if you, if everything you try works, right? You're not taking enough risk, right? So you, you need to have failure to know where your kind of boundaries are and to know what, what works and what doesn't and to learn from the world because, you know, hard questions, you can't, you can't sort of make up the answer in a conference room, right? You got to go out there and, and get data and test things. Um, but I think that, that to, to your point, and, you know, nobody died at the Oscars, right? So that wasn't, that was a big, embarrassing public failure, but it wasn't a tragedy, right? Right. Um, but what's interesting about it is, is I think exactly that, is the sort of mundanity. And, and, and we spent um, a lot of time thinking about how do, we, how do we help people figure out the systems or the projects that are more likely to fail in this way, right? You know, th- things life happens all the time, as you say. You have small, small misunderstandings. You have something that breaks. Most of the time, it doesn't matter. But when you're in these systems that are complex and tightly coupled, when you're in these systems that are complex and are unforgiving, these kind of small failures are more likely to snowball into the big ones. And that's what we see in some of these plane crashes. That's what we see at the Oscars. Um, you know, that's what we see in um, how people are able to sometimes hide wrongdoing. Right. So they use complexity to sort of hide misbehavior. And I think being able to sort of take a step back and, and um, diagnose that from afar, I think can be a really powerful thing. We actually have a, a little bit of a, a quiz on our um, website. So if you go to um, meltdownbook.net, it will po- point you over to a, a link where you can take a quiz just about a project you're writing to kind of get a little self-assessment on like how, how well is this, um, how, how, how well into the, this kind of danger zone are you?
1: I, you? You worked as a derivatives trader and, and you studied physics and biology. And how, how does the, the physics and biology relate to the work which, which formed Meltdown? That's a good question.
0: Um, <clears throat> I think there's probably two two ways. One is, you know, physics is all about um, kind of looking for answers by by having toy problems a little bit. And so I think um, my having studied physics and, and engineering stuff as an undergrad uh, sort of, you know, gave me that toolkit to some extent. Uh, just to to look at those kind of problems and also to understand the sort of dynamics of how systems interact and and systems evolve. So you know, thinking about the world in kind of a a nonlinear way and and being able to put that together. Um, you know in biology, i I sort of studied similar things um, l- looking at I did systems biology, which was this kind of idea that you can. You know, you think of the of the cells of the sort of fundament, fundamental kind of units of life, not as this kind of collection of linear processes, but this sort of um, collection of different modules that are, you know, quasi independent and you're interested in how they interact. And so I think in a sort of deep subconscious way that that very much informed um, kind of my sitting with with the, the, the material in this book.
1: And you're and you're a licensed commercial pilot, and there's a great story in the book about a young pilot standing up to Steve Jobs and refusing to fly. Well, I think it's one of the best stories in the book, actually. Yeah. Do you want to explain what happened? Yeah, no,
0: it's a great story. So when you're when you're flying small airplanes, you know, there's there's they're a little bit like Volkswagen Beetles with wings in some sense. Like that's sort of the feeling that that you know you have when you walk up to one of these things and you know there's of course the space in in the cabin but also weight, right because ultimately these things have to fly and so this was a pilot that was flying steve jobs um his the pilot's boss um and a bunch of computer equipment and and he didn't know about the computer equipment. So these guys show up. At, he's at this small airport, kind of dusty valley in Northern California. It's really hot that day, which means the plane is just less effective. It can't produce as much lift. Um, and he's sort of looking at it. He's looking at this, a bunch of computer equipment. He's looking at, you know, Steve. Steve Jobs is, you know, legendarily fuming, right? He's, he's impatient. He wants to get out of there. And the pilot just says, you know, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. Steve so Jobs, well, the guy last time did it. Says, well, that wasn't me. I don't know what the conditions were. Um, but I'll tell you what. And he came up with an integrative solution. He said, i you know, you guys can drive to this airport, it's half hour away. I'll fly. I'll meet you there. It's got a long runway. It's by the coast. Um, it'll be great. So, you know, flight back. It wasn't very long. But he's total silence. They land on the ground, and and the guys shutting down the plane, and Steve Jobs and and um, this pilot's boss have gone inside, and. Uh, he gets a lineman comes out and says, hey, you know, boss wants to see you. And he goes, all right, you know, here it goes. I refuse to do this. I'm going to get fired. And the guy goes, "Uh, Brian, what do we pay you? Uh, And Brian's like, whatever, 50 bucks a day. He goes, all right, we're going to double that. We need the kind of pilots here who can, you know, stand up to to Steve Jobs because they believe, you know, in in the name of safety. And what this pilot said was that, you know, this was a pivotal moment in his career. I mean, it made him sort of realize that, um, you know, how, how important this was, how important it was to, um, you know, sort of honor the dissent of those that, that maybe don't agree with us. And, you know, now this guy is a, a, a captain for a major airline. And, you know, I have to say, like, I'm pretty, um, pretty confident that he's going to do as much as he can to get his first officer to speak up when, when they, they see something wrong. So I, you know, I think it's a great, um, it's the kind of thing that, that, is very clear in an operational context like flying. But it also exists in, you know, all sorts of organizations that that sort of need to go back to the people who are closest to the problem and get their input, even if it messes up your sort of, you know, your sort of beautifully, perfectly laid plans, because you can get away with it a lot of the time. But when you're in this regime that's sort of, you know, complex where these small errors can snowball, it becomes a really tough thing to recover.
1: Yeah, I think honouring dissent is a very, is a very nice phrase, and is is not commonplace.
0: No, it's not. You know, I think it's um, and and I, you know, I've been involved in in organizational change initiatives and and things like that. And you so often hear this this drumbeat that um, people need to have the courage to speak up, and and that's sort of true but irrelevant. the 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 real truth, I think, is that managers need the courage to listen right managers need the courage to um uh, right honor that dissent to celebrate it and to and to 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 listen to it and to take it and to do something with it you know they don't have to necessarily fix the problem um but they do have to take it in in an authentic way right you can't just have an empty suggestion box that you know gets emptied into the into the recycling bin every every month or whatever it's sort of um you, you one of the things that you need to do to keep people speaking up is to show them that their input actually matters
1: but I suppose traditionally the problem has been that uh, people get promoted for fixing problems and making decisions and they don't get promoted for listening
0: yeah I, I think our whole um, you know that i know i 'm not supposed to promote other books on on the podcast about my book, but annie duke's book uh on um Poker is a is another good one. And actually, the, the name has escaped me at the moment. Um, uh, oh, I think it's called Thinking in Bets. Um, but one of the things she talks about is is the kind of the danger of resulting, right? And we, we talk about that too. So um, you can't sort of, you can't just judge a decision by the outcome, right? I mean, one of the things we focus a lot on is how do you pay attention to the small, to the near misses, to the small signals that things aren't working because one day those might, Those might be the things that kind of blows up and blows up your system, and that can be, you know, being like just in time for making a project deadline, or it can be, you know, sort of a a nurse almost gives somebody the wrong medicine. Sort of how do we, how do we um, collect that very useful data about the world?
1: So with disaster after disaster, uh, this often appears kind of the golden age of meltdowns, which is a phrase you use in the book, but reassuringly in the book you you argue that this isn't the case, that it isn't the golden age of meltdowns, and we shouldn't perhaps be as alarmed as you might be reading your book, but can you explain why it isn't the golden age
0: yeah, sure so I, I think it, it's a it's a very nuanced argument and it's it's sort of um, there are more of these meltdowns, right there are more of these kind of system failures um, and we're just going to see more and more of them and I, and I think for for us the sort of challenging thing and, and the scary thing is we put more and more of our Fate in the hands of these complex systems. Whether that's you know thinking about something like um, our cars, whether we're talking about driverless cars or even just cars that have these kind of automatic um, safety systems built in. You know, more and more is in this realm of complexity. To hospitals, you know, there's no hospital that you can go to in the U.S. now that doesn't use electronic medical records, basically. And so, what what kind of errors can those sorts of systems cause? I, I think at the end of the day, um, both Andras and I are sort of pragmatic optimists. Like we, we we understand that these systems give us great and tremendous capabilities and they make things a lot better and they make us more efficient. Um, they, they um, you know, make things um, safer by and large, but they also open themselves up to these particular kinds of failures that have these big knock-on consequences. And so, you know, we see things like, Passengers stranded because airlines have a problem with their reservation system. There's nothing wrong with the planes or the pilots, but the, the ticketing system. Um, or, or what just happened, uh, you know, the, the UK timetabling disaster in, um, was it March or, or April? Uh, um, it's throughout the year, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where, you know, you have this, this system that's designed to kind of increase capability, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it doesn't. So I, I think what we think is, you know, the, the, the sort of Steven Pinker view of the world that, like, actually we're safer. Actually, things are, broadly speaking, better. But we are still more susceptible to these kind of idiosyncratic failures. And the good news is that the solutions aren't um, the solutions to these problems. As you said, they're, they're simple. That doesn't mean they're easy, but they are things that every one of us can do, whether we're, you know, a CEO or uh, a sort of new grad that's just been hired. There, there are ways we can think about the world. There are ways we can think in a structured way about our problems, and there are ways we can think about the way that we relate to the people around us and and sort of how we try to get information about what's really going on.
1: So, so where does the research go next? I mean, because I mean, I suppose you could you could carry on ad infinitum, gathering fantastic stories of uh, meltdowns.
0: Yeah, no, I, you're you're right. I mean, and I think we we hope to do a little bit more um, writing, kind of on on topic. Um, you know, I think one of the things we're we're really interested in doing now is helping um, helping people who are um, you know strong technical managers um, work to build great organizations and to sort of solve their organizational problems. Because um, I think the, the the cohort of people that work with technology or that um, you know, sort of use use technology in a way that is um, either you know could be a supply chain context, could be a software context. They see these problems firsthand every day, uh, and so many of the solutions are organizational. And so I think what 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 Andras and I, one of the things we're trying to do now is just sort of um, find those people out there who who are interested in and and need to solve these kind of problems and and helping them do that. So that's that's been a big focus. Um, we're thinking about, uh, what book two is also we're we're not, we're not quite sure where to get that, but I, or sort of where, what direction that'll go, but I think it'll be something, um, less meltdowny, but, but probably kind of, um, organizational sort of sociology leaning um, in the same way that meltdown is.
1: Okay, Chris, thank you very much. I think it's meltdown why our systems fail and what we can do about it by Chris and Andras Tilksik is, really riveting read and some fantastic stories, but actually a lot of practical wisdom. So I I would recommend it. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stuart. It was really a pleasure to chat.
0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.